0: There are several metaphors that I've heard over the years about the teaching profession. I thought I'd share some of them with you today in the spirit of Education Sabbath. First, teachers are gardeners. We provide nourishment and the right environment for our little seeds to help them blossom into the beautiful people they will become. And often, we don't even see the work we've done for years to come. It's very sweet, encouraging for those rough days when it feels like you've done nothing but shout into the void. The next one I've heard is teachers are sculptors. Students come into our classrooms as these shapeless mounds of clay, and it's up to us to refine them and mold them into having deeper knowledge and understanding. They are, as this author says, are monuments to carry on our legacies. This is another great thought, except it feels, I don't know, a little arrogant for me. But probably the most accurate one is this. Teachers are jugglers in a circus on a plane that is on fire while trying to land on a moving ship. It feels like that a lot of the time. I'm going into my 13th year teaching, like Pastor Icky said, my ninth year here at La Sierra Academy. And it really does feel so unreal to say that because I myself was a student at La Sierra Academy, not that long ago, it feels like. I was baptized, well, yeah, that's the first day of fifth grade. <laughs> I was baptized right back there. I graduated from the eighth grade on this stage. Um, I decided I wanted to be a teacher in one of my junior high classrooms on that campus, and then I trained to be a teacher on that campus. For half of my life, this community has given me so much, and it continues to do so. Friendships, a job, truly this is home. So when I was asked to speak for the BIOS series this this year, I thought, Where do I even start? It sometimes feels like the story of my life is already written all over this place. I grew up in this building where my dad pastored. It's our church directory photo from probably 1995. (laughs) I sang on this stage countless times in my childhood. There's one. I won Pathfinder of the Year at one investiture back in the day. Thank you very much. (laughs) There's just a lot. But I was told very specifically that this was Education Sabbath, so I felt an obvious pressure to say something about education, something possibly educational, something orbiting education in some form. And the irony is that figuring out how to do that is where I started to hit some major brick walls. My journey within education, specifically as an educator, has had ups and downs, victories, and heartbreaks. I went into teaching because it was in all of those corny and eyebrow-raising ways my calling. And as a card-carrying pragmatist, I'm right there with you, I was 12 years old, which is terrifyingly enough the exact age of my oldest daughter, when I was sitting in my seventh grade English class at La Sierra's junior high. I encountered a teacher who threw my future into focus in a way that it never had been before. Here was a woman who was sophisticated and intelligent and funny, who got to talk about books and encourage people to express their feelings for a living, so that was the year I declared my major, six years before anyone ever asked. By the time someone finally gave me a classroom of my own, I'd wanted to be a teacher for almost half my life. And I went, in, I went through the ringer to get my classroom, too. I graduated from college in 2009 in the middle of a recession when I couldn't even get a minimum wage job in retail, let alone in education. After Matthew and I got married, we moved to Arkansas to take a job at the Cracker Barrel. Yes, really. And Devo asked me for a photo of this, but um, we've scrubbed that from the record, so it doesn't exist. (laughs) The next school year, we heard of a little independently supported school in East Texas that needed an English teacher and a history teacher. When we got there, we found out they couldn't pay us a normal teacher salary, in fact, we have made more at the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and we were essentially signing ourselves into indentured servitude. But I didn't even care a little bit. I was teaching, and it was one of those rare things in life that is just as amazing as you think it will be. I fell in love. And let me be clear. The hits started coming, like needing to move to a new school that would actually offer health insurance. <laughs> or being fired when my newborn got in the way of the demands of being a boarding school employee, or trying to get my California teaching credential when I was in three states that were not California. Still, I loved teaching. I felt grateful every day that I got to do what I was doing with my life. But that's not to say that I saw everything through rose-colored glasses. There are deep and foundational issues within the education system, a system that was created with factory workers in mind that hasn't changed despite the ways that our society has shifted to value more innovation, creativity, and critical thinking. But I felt that I was able to work within the world of my own classroom to do what I could to make the best of that imperfect system. And I was hopeful that eventually the system might catch up. I still am. But you're waiting for the and then, right? The inevitable shift in the story where I tell you that something has changed, and you probably think you know what it is already. The pandemic hit education in a way that we're still feeling waves from. People left the profession in droves. Online or hybrid learning was a thing of dystopian nightmare. Quarantining and masking and plexiglass shields robbed all the personality out of the classroom, all the joy. It became sterile and bland. But the crazy thing is that none of those things made me question, even for a minute, whether I still wanted to be a teacher. It was something to get past, something to endure. I never questioned that I'd come out on the other side still joyful. But a few school years later, last school year, in fact, something did change. And I don't know what. By all accounts, an ordinary year with ordinary issues, with ordinary trials. But in the midst of all of that ordinary, I felt like I'd been flattened into a two-dimensional version of myself. I was exhausted. I was short-tempered, and worst of all, I felt absolutely no joy. One of the brick walls I was, coming, I was hitting and coming up with what to talk about today was this exact moment, where I admit to a congregation full of my community members, my students, parents of my students, my colleagues. I hesitated to say all of this because so many of you place your children in my classroom every day. And part of what made the past year so difficult was knowing that there was a trust given to me, a nonverbal contract that had been signed that I would give the best of myself every day. And my best has always been enthusiastic and energetic and joyful. But I was drained, exhausted, joyless. I cried through most of the last week of school. I was devastated terrified, suddenly the thing I loved felt like the thing that was holding me hostage, and I couldn't think of a single way to reharness the joy. I couldn't even really figure out how to put what I was feeling into words. Dare I speak the word burnout aloud? This is something that that happens to people who don't really love teaching, who fell into the profession temporarily or never really embraced the challenges of the job, not to lifers like me, not 12 years into a 40-year career. That same week, the last week of school, Devo asked me if I would speak for Education Sabbath at church at the end of the summer. (laughs) Talk about crazy timing. And while there are a lot of things about myself that I struggle to like, one thing I appreciate about me is that I'm honest. So when I was asked, I knew I couldn't come up here today and say, yay, teaching. I had to tell the truth. So I spent the summer relaxing and vegging and doing absolutely nothing related to school to achieve a sort of factory reset on my brain. And when it was time, I eased back in bit by bit. I did continuous checks with myself. How are you feeling? Are you dreading the school year? Is this one going to be better than the last? And if it ever felt like too much, I backed off, waited a while to try again. Social media gets a bum rap a lot of the time, but I find more often than not, it has the ability to connect people who are struggling people on the fringes with others who feel the same things that they do. I can't tell you how many times I've come across a post that felt so eerily true and real by saying something that I had felt but never had the courage or intuition to say myself. One instance of this happened to me a few weeks ago while I was preparing what I was going to say today. And if you follow me on Instagram, this might be familiar because I had to repost it. These words rang so unbelievably true to me in this season of my life, both as a teacher and with all the things that I've been digesting. I wanted to share a few of them with you today in case they ring true for you as well. Words to repeat to yourself in August. I will continue to breathe as I pace myself through the days and weeks ahead. I will give energy to what I need to give energy to, and rest where I need to rest. I am allowed to challenge myself while also being gentle with myself as I start to lose my place in what I'm reading, as I start to plan ahead. I am allowed to refine success. I'm free to create my own rhythms. When I find myself thinking about all the things I haven't done yet, I can take a moment to reflect on all the little ways that I've already been growing wiser, that I can continue to build upon. Here's the really scary part. After all the relaxing and the resetting, the questions and self-examination, I still just don't know. I don't know if I will ever have the 100% pure and undiluted level of joy I once had for teaching, or if I'll settle into more of a 70-30 split, probably the average person's feeling about their job. I don't know if I'll learn to be okay with less, or if I'll figure out how to climb back to the top of the mountain, but what I know, what I'm learning, is that I'm allowed to be human, That even as a teacher, even with that nonverbal contract I mentioned where I give my best to the kids in my desks, I'm allowed to be tired. I'm allowed to downshift when I need to. I'm allowed to ask for help. So while we're here, maybe we actually verbalize that nonverbal contract. I will promise to give my best, whatever level of myself that is, Every day, I will promise to teach your children with love, to show them that imperfection is okay and that reaching out for support should be celebrated. I will teach them to appreciate a good book, and to see the world with empathy and kindness. And you can promise to see your children's teachers as people who have flaws but are doing their best, as humans who make mistakes, but not with intention, as professionals whom you can rely on to know their craft and base their behaviors and practices on that expertise. This year, I'll be leaning into the experience of a more seasoned, more realistic, more balanced view of my job. I'll be learning to accept that nothing is joyful all the time and that even careers have honeymoon phases. And 12 years is a pretty good honeymoon phase. I'll learn to manage my stress so I can see years 20, 30, and 40 in my classroom. I'll adjust my expectations of what success feels like. And I'll start to see a professional to help me manage my mental health better. And I am so blessed to do that with a community that embraces and faces difficulty rather than asking for it to be hidden. So thank you for that from the bottom of my heart. I was asked to ask you all to stand for the reading of the word this morning. (laughs) Is it gonna come up? (laughs) There we go. When Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba far in the south of Judah. He left his young servant there and then went on into the desert another day's journey. He came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade waiting in the worst way to be waiting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. Exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone broom bush. Suddenly, an angel shook him awake and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and to his surprise, right by his head were a loaf of bread baked on some coals and a jug of water. He ate the meal and went back to sleep." The angel of God came back, shook him awake again, and said, get up and eat some more. You've got a long journey ahead of you. He got up, ate and drank his fill, and set out, nourished by that meal. He walked 40 days and nights all the way to the mountain of God, to Horeb. When he got there, he crawled into a cave and went to sleep. Then the word of God came to him. So, Elijah... What are you doing here? The Word Word of God. God.
1: (laughs) So vulnerable, so honest, so authentic. Can we give Lindsay another big round of applause? As a community, we must continue to strive to be authentic and real and honest with each other and with God. Thirteen years ago, the journey started. Thirteen years ago, the first iPad was launched. Thirteen years ago, a little app known as Instagram started. Thirteen years ago, Lady Gaga wore a meat suit. Does anyone (laughs) meat suit? Why, Lady Gaga? We still ask. 13 years later. 13 years ago, Toy Story 3 hit the box office. Barack Hussein Obama was the president. 13 years ago, in 2010, yes, Crocs were in. Many of us were singing songs by Bruno Mars, just the way you are. 13 years ago. For some of us that was a blink of an eye, it just was yesterday. For others of us it seemed so long ago, 13 years ago, a young, passionate, educated, idealistic Lindsay steps into the classroom and the universe changes, world peace among us. No more wars or misunderstandings. And the only adults that were being formed were intellectuals who were generous. 13 years ago, when she stepped into the classroom, the utopian earth of equity, inclusion, and justice became a reality. That's not true. As you and I already live in this reality. Maybe somewhere in the multiverse this is true, but here today, it's not the way things work. You and I... We, we come into these spaces and, and we pour our hearts in and we believe that something special would take place. And maybe it does, but reality doesn't shift like so. Instead, life is filled with deadlines and goals and lesson plans and expectations, responsibilities we have to take care of, fires we've got to put out, and distractions that divide our attention against the deepest of our desire to change the world, the world usually ends up changing us. I read a post that I just thought was really funny, so I wanted to share it with you. And it has to do with my occupation, being a pastor. Um, It said, most new pastors think they're going to change the world, and they almost get fired for changing the bulletin. (laughs) Right, right. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Here in our story today, Lindsay and Elijah are exhausted. Elijah is a difficult person for me to relate to. Elijah, it, it just seems like such such a a large figure. Uh, I, I relate to individuals in the Bible like Peter. You know, you're, they're, they're kind of quick to answer. Then they have to step back, learn, and relearn, and relearn. The disciples are kind of my rhythm because Jesus had to often tell them, you of little faith, or do you not understand what I'm telling you? So their rhythm and mind fall more in line. But Elijah, Elijah's a prophet. He, he's an individual who has a lot of, of weight wherever he goes. It seems as if he's such a lofty character i i have a difficult time connecting with someone so righteous you know that you are righteous when you can pray and fire from heaven comes down somewhere in the bible we learn that the prayers of a righteous person avails what much in all my years of praying never has fire come down from heaven can i get an amen Maybe it's good that it never did. When I think of Elijah, he's such a righteous, lofty prophet. And yet in this moment in the story, where we see him under a broom bush, in a wilderness experience, exhausted, wanting to die, I find myself closer to Elijah than ever. In his words, enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm pulled into his story. I think we're all pulled in because for the first time, we really get to see Elijah. We see the person of Elijah. We see Elijah's heart. We see Elijah's sorrow, Elijah's pain. There he is, bare before God. He is being completely authentic. Brene Brown writes, Authenticity is a collection of choices that we have to make every day. It's about the choice to show up and be real. The the, the choice to be honest. The choice to let our true selves be seen. And here in this moment, Elijah bears his true self for all of us to experience. And so we draw close to Elijah. In contrast, the events that took place for Elijah to be here, Elijah looked different. He was bold when he came towards the king. He, he made the, the declaration that we should meet on Mount Korb. So he's confident and almost arrogant on Mount Carmel. You remember that experience, right? Where the prophets were trying to uh, get their altar burned, and he starts to taunt them. The, the word says he starts to taunt them. I don't know that Christian values or that there's a spiritual gift for taunting, but Elijah has it. He's taunting So he's confident. He's he's almost arrogant. He produces a great miracle, and he's decisive about putting the prophets to death. In our world, these attributes are seen as great leadership, to be bold and confident, to be producers to be decisive when we see this in people we often say wow great leadership but notice that in this story the only thing that God told Elijah to do was to go and present yourself to Ahab instead when Elijah goes to present himself to Ahab he not only presents but he steps into this facade of who he thinks God needs him to be he becomes bold and arrogant He produces, and he's decisive. And and in our world today, we say, wow, there is great leadership. We attribute success to these kind of individuals who show these kind of characteristics. We equate such leadership with success. Thomas Keating, in his book, The Human Condition, writes this. We have oversubscribed to the language of success. We have oversubscribed to it. We want success in so many different facets. We're looking for leaders that that pull these things out. And so when people step into these positions, they try to, to be this role. It's called the false self, to borrow a term from psychology. Is this Elijah, the Elijah God wanted to use? Or is this Elijah who showed up on Mount Carmel, the one who thinks he needs to be in order for God to use him? In order for Ahab to listen, in order for the prophets to respect him, in order for Jezebel to be scared of him. Is he filling in shoes because he thinks this is what needs to happen or is he truly just being who he is in God? It was Elijah who chose the confrontational meeting on Mount Carmel. It was Elijah who chose to taunt The prophets, it was Elijah who called for their lives. Elijah was doing what Elijah believed the people needed of Elijah and what God was calling Elijah to do. And it wasn't until Elijah was down by the broom bush in the desert by himself that he could be authentically true of how exhausting it is to be something you're not to lay down and want to give up, that their God was able to meet him and supply his truest need. Elijah seems to be emoting from a place that borrows a phrase of psychology that I mentioned, the false self. In the book, Gift of Being Yourself, David Benner, He has a a bit of a graph where he points out spiritually where our false selves can be and where our true selves can be. I just put a couple of them up here for you just to see. Uh, The first one is the false self is a security and significance achieved by what we have, what we can do, and what others think. So when we're thinking about our false self, these are the things that we do. It's entrenched in us. Sometimes we're aware of it. Sometimes it's unconscious. But we do these things in order for us to feel, fulfill, to feel fulfilled, right? The security and significance achieved by what we do. If I do enough things, if I just do enough stuff, people will recognize me. If, if I do it so that they can say something good about me, then all of a sudden I've got a sense of value. Or, or what is that person thinking What is that person? What are they all thinking? And so we we go about trying to to, to do this great thing so that someone can say, wow, that was valuable. We build legacies on this stuff. We're trying to build uh, uh, institutions and buildings and productions because we hope people will say, wow, La Sierra University Church's pastor is amazing, which is true. But not because of that. You see, this is the false self. And when we feed our false selves, it's exhausting. But the true self looks like this. Security and significance achieved by being deeply loved by God. Elijah's in a place where he can be nothing but himself. He's vulnerable, and in that place, God deeply loves him, and he experiences it. Another false self is the identity is our idealized self, right? So when you think about, okay, well, I've got to be a pastor, and what a pastor does is this. Or I have to be a teacher, and a teacher, if I'm going to be a teacher, I've got to show up at 5 a.m., and then I can't go home until 4 a.m., and then I go to sleep for an hour, feed my kids, and get back here. And so we try to leave to this idealized self, right? Like, this is what a teacher does. I've got to carry this. And someone says, hey, you don't have to be that way. No, I'm a teacher. Whoa, okay. The true self finds their identity is who we are and who we are becoming in Christ. It is the release of what other people think it should look like. It is the release of what you think it should look like and then to become more and more like Jesus in a space where you allow Jesus to fill you completely and wholly here in his authentic true self Elijah is keeping it real i am exhausted i don't want any more i'm done here's where god sends help because god does not leave elijah alone in his despondency God doesn't leave him there in his place of vulnerability. God loved Elijah deeply, and so he begins to care and nurture and feed. And if I may be honest, we cannot be cared for, nurtured, or loved until we are vulnerable enough to say, I need love. Until we are able to put our walls down and let others care for us. This place where Elijah is, God is able to begin to pour into him. Notice that Elijah's humanity did not repulse or anger or offend God. Elijah, fully in his humanity and not in his success, was loved by God. And this, this I just, I, I want this to sit with us for a little bit here. You are loved by God in your humanity, not in your success. Not in your title, not in your legacy, not in what you can do without sleep. You are loved wholly, completely, and fully by God in your humanity. God sees you as you are and loves you deeply. Turn to somebody and say, God loves you. Tell somebody else, God loves you. Elijah could not experience this until Elijah was ready to be vulnerable with God. Until Elijah was ready to release the legacy. Until Elijah was ready to put down the mask and break down the walls and say, I'm tired, God. And God said, now, now I can fulfill you. Too often we think that showing up in our humanity is weakness. We teach the next generation, don't look weak. Don't show your your soft side. Don't let people see you cry. Pull yourself up. And so we go about with these scars thinking that if we, if we are vulnerable at any moment, somehow the world is going to implode on us. And the irony is it isn't until we are vulnerable, till we can truly experience joy. Vulnerability sounds like truth and feels like courage. Truth and courage aren't always comfortable, but they are never weak. Brene Brown. So when here in our community we say that God loves you, we mean that God loves you in your humanity. Lindsay Maya shared, I don't know if I'll learn to be okay with less or if I'll figure out how to climb back to the top of the mountain. What I know, what I'm learning is that's okay. I'm allowed to be human. You don't have to be God when you leave here today. You're allowed to be human. You don't have to hold the system together. God will do that. You don't have to defend every church idea or fundamental belief. God's got that covered. What God needs of you and I is to just be human. To be loved in our humanity and then to be the best human beings We can be because of Jesus in our life. I'm allowed to be tired, Lindsay said. I'm allowed to downshift when I need to. I'm allowed to ask for help. And you can promise to see your children's teachers as people who are flawed. But do their best. As humans who make mistakes but never with intention. I would like to release you today. Being vulnerable to God and to each other. Being okay that at times you will make mistakes. Turn to someone and say, oh, you'll make mistakes. Careful if it's your spouse. And it's okay. You'll fail, it's okay. Your value is not based on the success or the failures that you experience. Your value is based on the blood of Jesus Christ, who loves you just as you are. Maybe church, maybe, maybe we've all worried too much about how many people come into church too often and not worry about what kind of people leave church on a weekly basis. Maybe we're worried too much about what people will think of us if we're too honest. Maybe we think, are we too broken to be loved by God and by others? Maybe we're so busy carrying the facade of the false self that we have a difficult time being real. Today I give you permission. You can be exhausted. Teachers, you can be tired. You had a long week, amen? You can make mistakes. Your success and your failures do not define you. The love of God defines you. Be well.